This is the story of Prince and the Revolution Live, produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. Welcome back. I'm your host, Andrea Swenson. On a cold winter afternoon in Chanhassen, Minnesota, I met up with the Revolution's Bobby Z and Dr. Fink in the warm and candlelit studios of Paisley Park to reminisce about the Purple Rain Tour. Before we sat down in Studio A, the three of us walked around the complex together, taking in all the artifacts from this era in the museum's Purple Rain Room. The motorcycle and an outfit, the guitar, Paul guitar, the Yamaha purple. The purple custom Yamaha CP70 piano that normally is, would have been black from the factory. And then they had it custom covered in purple vinyl. I remember from the tour, they said you could see scuff marks on the top of it because he would dance on it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But he played electric intercourse on that piano. Walking around Paisley Park with Bobby and the doctor, known offstage as Matt Fink, the memories just kept pouring out. It's a little surreal to watch them look up at huge photos of themselves on the wall and study the iconic images from the Purple Rain album artwork. Well, this photograph came back and forth several times uh, to rehearsal. And also, in that same era, the Purple Rain album, these flowers that you see, he placed these flowers on a white floor and they got up on a ladder and shot it. He placed these flowers on the floor. I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. He went in the room and he placed them. Yeah. Randomly, Randomly. just just to, to you know, you know, aesthetically the way he wanted it to go. Yeah, no, it's something I mean, else. You just take it for granted now. It's wallpaper, basically. But it's, it's, it's an original Prince work. What okay. is it like to look at these things in a museum now? It's very weird. <laughs> it's, it's really odd. Just walking through it. It's very... You know, like, there you are. It felt appropriate to share this quiet moment with Bobby and Matt at Paisley Park. As they told me that day, they would often share these quiet moments with Prince on the Purple Rain Tour. It was a chaotic and overwhelming time in all of their lives. But before every show, Prince, Bobby, Matt, Wendy, Lisa Coleman, and Brownmark would gather backstage in Prince's dressing room. Yeah, there was a ritual that Prince... uh always did before the show where we would stand in a prayer circle and uh, he would pick one of us to lead the prayer that night. He'd take turns, right? So he'd point to you, it'd be your turn. Most, all the time, everybody rose to the occasion and said beautiful, inspiring words. It was just kind of a real, kind of um, a poetry moment where you had to kind of inspire us for this particular night so either he did it, sometimes he would just break into it and talk, you know, if, if there was something funny going on in the world at that time or tragedy or bad things, you know, we would always uh, acknowledge that at the time and ask for uh, help and prayers for anybody in distress in the world. It's a memory that's still vivid for Wendy and Lisa, too. 
Well, we'd say a little prayer. We did that whole standing around in a circle. It was always very tense in that circle with Prince. Like nervous tense? He was always so hyper-focused before he went on stage, like he never broke character. He had this certain way about him. There was just no fucking around, right? So you'd go into his room, and it was very quiet. I always remember it being very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd grab hands, and he'd say something really quickly. I would read his body language in the circle and see what mood he was in. And there were many times where I would be on stage where I knew during circle time he wasn't going to have eye contact with you on stage. Hmm. He was going to keep to himself. And then other times where, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that he was going to engage you on stage. Y'all want to jump on the island dance? It's cool. Friday night, I call your ass up on the phone. A deeper voice answers, says you're not at home. Now if you think that I'm a fool, go for any line. Put down all your money, you win every time. It maybe goes without saying that this was a highly pressurized time in Prince's career. Within a few short months, in early 1985, Prince and the Revolution would sweep the Grammys and the American Music Awards, win an Oscar for the Purple Rain soundtrack, and perform a week of shows at the Forum in Inglewood, California that featured cameos from Bruce Springsteen and Madonna. Prince would also make headlines for deciding not to participate in the all-star recording of We Are the World and for an unfortunate confrontation that same night between his bodyguard and a photographer. It was the first time the media really turned on Prince and began scrutinizing his every move. He had the widespread visibility he'd been working toward for years, but not everything about it was positive. Literally, people would just go crazy to see him. This is Craig Rice, who worked on the Purple Rain film and tour with Prince. So my job on the Purple Rain tour um, as a road manager consisted of Uh, basically moving the band forward all the time and then keeping track of them at all times, you know? So where's Prince at? Where's Mark at? Where's Wendy and Lisa at? You know, because you don't want to lose a musician. Part of Craig's work was to find places for Prince and the band to hang out while they were on the road, away from the spotlight. But as the tour wore on, that grew more difficult. We did a thing in D.C., it was Sheila E., his father, me, security people, for senators and stuff like that. It was part of the Marvin Collins, um, recognizing her. We had a table and all that stuff. We walk in. Now, this is serious. This is like people who run the country. This is like, this is, you know, we're, we're not talking about interns here. We're talking about people who actually are creating the country. And they're dancing since we were late, but that's okay. And everybody stopped and stared. And we sat at our table and people surrounded the table. It was like they were at the zoo. It was so weird. So I said, Prince, you and Sheila should go out and dance. Maybe people will then go get the idea, you know, but then what they did is circle them, watch them dance. We ended up having to leave after a while. I've been in this business, but I had never seen anybody that, 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 that was like a magnet for attraction. 
Um, and so go, going to things was kind of disruptive. Going shopping became disruptive. I mean, anything he did, um, and I think that's part of the pain that, that he witnessed later on or the isolation that he witnessed that he couldn't no longer just do things other than here in Minnesota. How did Prince react to that kind of thing? And in, in my my perception of his thing, he was surprised by it. But it's also what he worked towards. Prince had a vision for himself. I think Purple Rain pr- propelled him faster forward than he probably was thought about. Because we went to Amadeus twice that we ended up having to leave before we realized, oh, we have to book the whole theater for you to watch the whole movie. You know, we had to close down a beauty parlor to do this. We have to close the store down for you to shop. We can no longer go there. But we, with that comes isolation, closing down a restaurant. I mean, just so you can go eat at a restaurant. Uh, that I don't, I don't think you can plan for that and realize that you're really cutting yourself off. We call it the the 15 minutes, you know, they, he could probably have 15 minutes of just kind of just being in the audience or standing in the back of the room before the whole place would just start <laughs> pulsating because he's there. And then and, and it was no longer real anymore. It was not real. That shifting reality affected Prince's relationship with the revolution, too. Here's Brownmark. Yeah, it, it changed. Pre-Purple Rain, it was a different world. I liked it. It was a growing experience. I was a soldier. Purple Rain, oh man, you know, it's almost like a separation. He started riding in a different bus. Um, He started coming to rehearsal two and three hours late, but let you come in late and see what happens. So that was a little difficult to swallow. I do remember missing Prince by that point. By the end of the Purple Rain tour, we, none of us got to see much of him. He was just shuttled off doing other things and getting ready at a different hotel or driving by himself with another limousine. With a, It was like a whole other world. Like All of a sudden, we were broken up as a band at that moment. We weren't together as a unit traveling all these places. And I remember feeling like, well, where is he? When is he coming? It was... A, a bit of an adjustment to have Prince kind of satellite away from us. Right. And be, we'd see him, like, being led away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bye! See you on stage! Prince didn't give any interviews during the entire Purple Rain period. And he wasn't really one to sit around reflecting on how he was feeling or why he was making the decisions he was making anyway. But years later, he would offer a few clues about what was going on in his mind toward the end of the Purple Rain tour. Speaking to Icon magazine in 1998, Prince said, I was doing the 75th Purple Rain show, doing the same thing over and over for the same kids who go to Spice Girls shows, and I just lost it. I said, I can't do it. I knew I had to get away from all that. I couldn't play the game. And in 1999, he told Entertainment Weekly, people's perception of me changed after that, and it pigeonholed me. I saw kids coming to concerts who screamed just because that's where the audience screamed in the movie. That's why I did Around the World in a Day to totally change that. I wanted not to be pigeonholed.
he hinted at it. By the time we hit Miami, it was like he was he was so over the whole thing. This is Prince's longtime lighting and production designer, Roy Bennett. The pressure was overwhelming. He never set out to be commercial. It's kind of contradictory because he liked writing hit songs, but at the same time, he didn't want to write normal hit songs. You know, he always was trying to be an anomaly, and, and, and there was always a, a bit of an edge to him, things that made people think and maybe a little uncomfortable. And I think it became too homogenized for him uh, in, in a way because it was such a huge commercial success. started changing up his show midway through the Purple Rain tour. One of the final songs of the set list, Baby I'm a Star, became a sprawling 20-plus minute jam with cameos from tour opener Sheila E. and his friends Jerome Benton, Wally Safford, and Greg Brooks, foreshadowing the band that he would take on the parade tour in 1986. Bringing up all those people on stage, that started happening later. It wasn't, yeah, that didn't happen at the beginning. So it started happening more and more later and then and bringing Sheila's band up and stuff like that. So there was kind of You like, could see him getting restless. He was like, <laughs> you know, trying to pound as hard as he could and just trying to mix it up. And and we felt it. We were like, what's, what's going on? Something's going on. Yeah. It yeah. probably took a little pressure off him to have all those people on the stage, too. He could play off for more of those people. Right. And create a, a different personality depending on what Wally and Brooks and Jerome were doing, you know, and that was the start of a whole new thing. You could see his personality change. His attitude changed when he's around those three guys and that person came out on stage a little bit more. He was always, he always <laughs> got happy when Jerome was around. Yeah. I remember a few times I was like, oh good, Jerome's, Jerome's here. Jerome will make him laugh. And he always did. Hmm. Jerome made him laugh. Yeah. All right. Dig up, y'all. I'm going to show you a new trick. Are you ready? All right. I want all 40,000 some odd fools up in here to snap your fingers right like this. And don't make no noise. Just snap them. And listen, listen. Snap your fingers. There you go. Everybody listen, come on. Do you know what that is? Orgasm. Prince also tapped Eric Leeds to sit in for several songs each night. Well, I am Eric Leeds. I play the saxophone, among other things. Sometimes I play the pool. For whatever reason, I was there for Prince's amusement. There might have been 15,000 people in the audience, but, you know, they weren't there for me. I was, you know, I had an audience of one. For the entire time that I was in Prince's band, 
every night, whether it was Purple Rain or, or The Sign of the Times or Love Sexy or any other gig that I would print, every night I had an audience of one that was Prince. I was there because of him. And, and not just me, but everybody in his fans. You know, we were there for him. He didn't need us. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he needed us in the plural, but there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of musicians that could have done for him every bit what all of us did for him. Mm. We were just the fortunate ones that have been there. couldn't at that point discover the, the the next level of who Prince was going to become he was obligated to be that character that entire tour and it could have been one of the reasons why the tour didn't last as long as it should have and that we didn't get to other territories with the tour because of probably being him and knowing how much he changes constantly got tired of that and was like I'm I can't do I'm on to the next now. This is done. He told us in Chicago, I'm, I'm done after this. You guys can take a break. He was not going to Europe and not going to Japan. And that, that's what this conversation was about. This tour is ending. I'm ending it. Much to the chagrin of just about every business person involved in his career. He was bigger than the movie. Mm. That's what they didn't re really understand. This is Prince's longtime manager, Bob Cavallo. But he saw himself, he, he felt his genius, and he saw himself going in and creating more and more stuff. Different. I've already done that. Well, you haven't done it, you haven't exposed yourself to the major cities in the world. Right. And he could have. We, we could have. We did a week at Madison Square Garden. We did a week at the Forum in L.A. We, I mean, at least five or six nights in each one. The people went nuts, let's face it. It was very successful. But it was also a disappointment because what you're doing, what you're sh promoting, is what he did instead of go around the world like he was supposed to. Right. The whole world should see this phenomenon. So we made a movie that's a film to send around to the places that he should have visited, in my opinion. You know, even three nights in Europe, Paris, London, Holland, in stadiums, he wouldn't, he was just done. Creatively, he was done. And around the world in the day, I'd been in the can for all five months, 100 shows of Purple Rain, and he, he just couldn't wait any longer creatively. Had to be out. So what do we do? Warner Brothers scrambling, could have sold a zillion more albums. And so the compromise is reached to do this satellite show to Europe. 
which was pretty innovative. In fact, Prince and the Revolution's satellite broadcast show from the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, New York, on March 30th, 1985, was unprecedented. That morning, the Syracuse Herald-Journal reported that Prince will be making rock and roll his own and dome history with the eight-camera live concert telecast to be bounced off a satellite and into the living rooms of an estimated 12 to 15 million Europeans tuned into the popular West German program Rockpalast. Later that night, the carrier dome filled with smoke. All eight cameras trained their lenses on the stage, and the production's director spoke into his intercom. Prince is ready. Everybody's ready. Let's go, camera one. Hello, Syracuse and the world. My name is Prince. And I've come to play with you. Seven years since the revolution performed in Syracuse alongside Prince, and many of them haven't watched the footage of their performance in decades. Wendy and Lisa let me join them for their viewing. Wow, look at the size of my hair! <laughs> Holy shit! Jill Jones's um, uncle, Earl. Earl. Earl Jones was the hair guy on that tour, and I just remember tons of hairspray and like, wow, look at my hair, it's huge. You too, look at you. You got a big watermelon on the side of your head. Oh yeah. Look at Bobby's hair. God, I wish I still had that suit. At one point, Wendy steps forward to take the iconic solo in Little Red Corvette, only to have the camera operator get distracted and pan away to Prince thrusting his hips in front of her. Bummer. It's too bad to have a girl doing a guitar solo in 1985 and you don't have the camera on them? <laughs> Classic. 
say. Well, <laughs> well, there was oh well. <laughs> no one did that back then. No one. No one. Had to thrust those hips. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay. It's all right. During Computer Blue, they giggle as they deliver their iconic opening line. <laughs> Sounds young, though. Like now it's like windy. I know. Yeah, it's right now. Water's too cold. It's too cold. <laughs> One thing Wendy and Lisa point out several times during the concert is just how fast they're all playing, especially on the hits. And you can see them both tense up as they watch themselves careen through these songs. Oh my God, listen how fast it is. Holy mackerel. It's like a cartoon. <laughs> he always did his shows faster, I guess, just to keep the energy up. Once it's over, they both visibly relax. Oh, it's a relief. I mean, being in it, we were so highly pressurized and all and all this, the sections and the show and everything was like, I don't know, it was just all so... Rigid. It was rigid and, you know, we tried to be perfect and and... I can't believe watching it now that I don't remember things and, you know, because it was so, like, <clears throat> carved into my brain. And um, I don't know, I just, I, I just found myself kind of smiling the whole time. Because <laughs> it's, it's also, like, amazing to see how young we were and energetic and, and that was just five people. Um, in the band, and it, it sounded good. I was having a little bit of like an odd feeling of like pride with it, and also experiencing a bit of PTSD because, like Lisa said, it was so we were so fine tuned, and it meant everything to not make a mistake. Right. And uh, having a good show meant not making one mistake. Right. I think it's a like being a, a gymnast, right? Yeah, your floor exercise, you, you can't make a mistake on your floor exercise or on the pummel horse or the uneven bars or whatever, right? So that was kind of like that. Um, being in his band felt a lot like that, but you know, you also had, you know, him who was like this incredible band leader like, uh, incomparable, really. Um, and the pride comes from knowing that someone of that caliber trusted you to be as good as you could be. Mm. And um, had faith that you could do it. And knowing that I was a 20-year-old girl, like, doing that. I could play my instrument and I could keep up with the boys.
you know, we're in the revolution and proud of it. And it was a very warm camaraderie after a show, especially a good show. I mean, there's no better feeling in the world. It's like winning the Super Bowl every night. Incredible. Especially these, like something like Syracuse. This is just, you finish a show like that and you're just, you feel like you survived something. For Bobby Z, listening to the band power through their set list at what he calls concert speed brought up a funny memory. On the beautiful ones, he would come up behind me and get on the piano on an elevator behind me. And we would always have this interaction, you know, funny face or scowl if I screwed up or something. And so it was one of the later shows and he was already he executed perfectly, but it mentally wasn't it. So he's goofing around, making faces to me, stuff that I could only see. So he comes around in the beautiful months, and I'm setting the Lynn, and he goes, I want it faster. I said, the beautiful ones? <laughs> you want faster? It's like, well, okay. So he reached, he's on the elevator, and he reaches down to the Lynn, and he spins, he, touch and I'm just looking at him like wow man you know just what are you doing and he speeds it up too fast so now it's like and he's like looking at me with this look of horror like you know he's going up right behind me and there's nothing he can do and he's I'm he's like that's too fast that's too fast and so I say okay I got you. you know I turn it down everything but he just he wanted that that power almost a, a relentless 108 beats per minute dance track you know everything was about the energy and he he definitely wanted those cruising Well, I'll tell you, the solo on When Doves Cry at that tempo is insane. <laughs> but I, I watched it, I watched me do it. I watched it happen and I went, oh my God, how'd I do that? <laughs> there must have been a, must have had a robot attached to my hand or something. Anyway. How many times do you think you've played that particular lick in your life? Oh, boy. Wow. Well, obviously, what, we had 105 shows on that tour, so that was 105, and then we uh, we did it on subsequent tours here and there, probably looking at, yeah, probably 800, 900, who knows? Watching the concert again was a similarly powerful experience for Brownmark. I mean, 
you know, listening back, I'm like, wow, we, we sound like a freight train just coming out of nowhere. Nothing was going to stop us. And it was just like, you know, it was big. It was big. I've, I've been to a lot of concerts. I've never seen anything like that. But I never saw us, see? And so listening back to that Syracuse show, man, I'm like, wow, that we were huge. That was powerful. It was, it was life-changing to so many people. And I just, I never realized it, see? I'm just a guy doing my job, you know? That's all I was. Seeing it, it was like, felt old and new. You know, it's like watching a home movie. It's hard to recognize myself in that, but I totally see myself in that, like as hungry as I was, how determined I was to be in that front line. I was in the front line. I wasn't in the back line. There was, wasn't gear hiding me, like Bobby and Lisa and Matt. I had to keep up with Mark and, and Prince. You know, that's the other thing about watching the concert was like, I never got to see it from the front. So it's interesting to see what we were actually doing, you know, and how it looked. So, I mean, that's a trip for me to see that. Just like all of our heads bopping around and our hair is like flying and going the same directions and different directions. It was a long time ago, but the fact that it lives on kind of has an eternal youth to it. The fact that it's coming out again, the fact that people care enough to take something you worked on and a show you played on, and it's, it's revered, and now that he's gone, I mean, these things are historic artifacts. That's kind of mind-blowing. Like when Purple Rain got in the Library of Congress, that's kind of mind-blowing. So this is pretty remarkable that uh, all this time has passed, but people are still ready to enjoy it in a new way. I feel like the revolution carries the torch. And I, I feel we have a duty to um, uh, let people, the new generations, the kids of the generation and their kids experience that. Just like when I grew up, Elvis was gone, but I, you know, I, I heard about him so much that I got to experience him. And I see a similar thing that happened with Prince. I just feel that he's not fully gone yet. See, he, he's at rest, but, you know, he lives on through us. Because when the revolution gets together, we are what he made. We, we helped write that stuff. We helped make it. We are part of who he was. He would have to feel that way about the band in order to have you up, up there. So you knew, you always had a sense that if you were there, you were meant to be there. And I always felt very strongly that I belonged there. He knew that you're on this planet, on the earth for a short time, and you gotta make the best of it. And if there's anybody that did, it was him who, who put his whole heart and soul into his art and everything. But it was a labor of love. And that's it. He just, uh, he couldn't stop the music. He couldn't stop what was coming. He, he was a conduit, I think. Getting down to the spiritual level, he, he definitely was, you know, channeling something. 
spiritual throughout his life. And looking back on it all, um, it's really uh, astounding to me that we did that. <laughs> it's hard to believe we, we did that whole that whole thing because now it's it's you know raising kids and being just a regular old guy back in Minneapolis uh, and not doing so much touring anymore. Uh, yeah, looking back on it, it was an exciting moment of life. Despite his conflicted feelings about the tour, Prince was incredibly proud of the work he did with the revolution. While doing an interview with Ebony in 1986, he was asked if he was pleased with the success of Purple Rain. Prince said, oh yeah, there's nothing I would change. It was one of the most powerful concerts I've ever attended. I never meant to call you Thank you. I never meant to cause you any pain. I only wanted one time to see you laughing. Story of Prince and the Revolution Live is produced by the Prince Estate and distributed by Sony Music Entertainment. This story was written and co-produced by me, Andrea Swenson. Anna Weggel is our producer and Corey Schreppel is our technical director. Thanks also to Trevor Guy, Zach Hockapol, Michael Howe, and Dwayne Tudal. Order your copy of Prince and the Revolution Live on vinyl, CD, and Blu-ray at prince.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, search for the official Prince podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite platform. Something new.